Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko, and on today's episode, I have a friend with me. His name is Derek Negron. Derek is a native of Miami, Florida. Derek, whose name means gifted leader, uses his leadership gifts to teach and lead various organizations. He is the founder and CEO of I Teach and Lead LLC, an educational consulting and executive training company. Derek is a former award-winning principal with Miami-Dade County Public Schools. He currently serves as administrative director where he supports fragile schools. He is also a professional trainer and coach with the John Maxwell team. Derek is a faithful husband to his wife, Kimberly, and proud father to his two children, Carter and Dylan. Please help me welcome Derek to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. First of all, thank you, Hector, for allowing me to join you this day. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on again. And first question, always the same for all my guests. Please tell us who is Derek in your own words? Wow. Well, your first question started out as a loaded question. And I would be remiss if I did not answer that in light of my very own convictions. When I hear that question about who is Derek, the first thing that comes to mind is Derek is a son of God. And that is not just a cliche or a statement that really gives me my identity. And in short, without spending all day on that one question, by that I mean that I believe that the potential of anything is always based on its source. And with me keeping that in mind about who I am, a son of God, I always go back to the source. And that means that I have unlimited potential. And that's dear to me and something that I hold. So in short, Derek has a lot of different roles, as you mentioned, some in the intro. And that's father, that's husband, that's administrative director, CEO. Those are roles that I play. But at the root and the core of who I am, I'm a son of God in short. And at what age would you say, or in your upbringing, when did you start to figure out that leadership may be a real goal for you? When I was probably six or seven, I remember having various roles as a child when I was in church. And I remember being a junior usher and being entrusted with collecting the money. And we had a youth church at that time, and it might've been maybe 30, 40 kids, but I was entrusted with collecting the money and making sure that it was turned in to the church staff and recording how much, and just having that particular role. That is one of the times that I remember being very young when I knew that I wanted the responsibility of helping others to be successful. And for me, having that leadership role really, I think catapulted me to other things in which I became very interested in to the point where I am now. So let's go down that road. You were six, you're seven years old and people are already trusting you with certain tasks. In middle school or high school, did you also get this feeling as if I may be into leadership or I wish I could be the president of something, a club, anything? 
I don't think I defined it as leadership at that time. I think I really enjoyed certain responsibilities and people looked to me, whether it was a teacher to have a specific role in the class or if it was my parents and they entrusted me at a very young age with, again, back in middle school with running my own business and I would sell items to snacks to students to be able to get my lunch money. And we actually started a business out of that. So those are roles and things. I didn't define it back then as leadership. It was what I thought just being responsible for what you're given in your hands. But as I look back on it, those were all leadership opportunities. And leadership, in it, of course, in this short definition is the ability to be able to influence others to a specific outcome. And back then, it, they, those were leadership responsibilities that I was given to get to a certain outcome. And as I did that, I, I now can look back and say, okay, I remember how that was influential in this situation, how I influenced this organization, how I influenced my family with this or my parents entrusted me to this, which might have influenced my sister. So uh, those were leadership responsibilities. And back then I just thought of it, I was being trying to be responsible. What did you major in in college? In college, interestingly enough, and I'll just give a quick story. I went to college with the intention of becoming an orthopedic surgeon. Had no idea that I would eventually go down the lane to education. And of course, in college, as many of us who have gone have had that experience that we sometimes go in with the idea of what we want to do. And sometimes it's just because of what we think that that particular profession is about. And when you get to studying the demands of that profession, it's like, wait a minute, I'm not sure if that's really what I think I want to do. But I, I studied exercise physiology. Uh, interestingly enough, at the University of Miami, that particular major is in the College of Education. And I ended up taking an education course while I was in college, although I was very much so against being a teacher when I finished that particular course, I did very well in. And looking back once again, I didn't see it as something that was meaningful or instrumental in my life, but it absolutely was. And so I ended up with exercise physiology as a major and actually finished with that as my bachelor's of science degree, um, but got directly into education when I left out of college. And you, in order to be an administrator, you have to spend some time in the classroom, correct? Correct. So you became a, a teacher, yes? Became a teacher. And that, again, that story was my mom, I was going getting ready to do a master's program. And she said, well, my mom was an educator for 30 years, said, I think you should try teaching. You have classes that you're going to be doing at night. Maybe you should try teaching during the day. So I was like, well, I guess I don't really have a reason why I shouldn't. Let me go on this interview and let's see what happens. I had no idea what I was going into. I don't, re I don't think I did very well on the interview. I remember being asked a question about a federal policy that I just kind of rambled on, I think. And, but for whatever reason, the principal decided to give me a chance. And here we are some 17 years later and I've been in education since. When in your teaching journey, did you say to yourself, 
I, I may want to consider going up the ladder. I remember being a fifth grade teacher and the assistant principal at that time received a promotion to become principal. And it, it was at that moment that two things happened. Sometimes when we are given leadership responsibilities, we're content with doing those responsibilities because they're in the shadow of somebody else's responsibility. And I did a lot of leadership tasks and projects and really expanded my leadership at that time, but it was under the shadow of another leader, which is good at times because it helps you to develop. But when that person was removed from the school, I knew at that point that it was time for me to take the next step for myself and not depend on somebody else's leadership title for me to channel my, my ideas and my creativity through that person. So it's kind of like the carpet, if you will, being or the rug being pulled from under you. You have, I had at that time a decision to make. And I remember immediately after that, signing up for education leadership courses to get my specialist degree. And so you get your degree, you apply, and you are given the promotion of assistant principal. How did that feel? I remember it to this day. It was a Wednesday night, and I was at the gas station at Racetrack. And I got a phone call and I did not answer it the first time because I didn't recognize the number. And I got the call again from that same number. I said, well, maybe I should pick it up and see. And the, I remember the region superintendent calling me to congratulate me on being promoted to assistant principal. It was still to this day, one of the most memorable. And I remember that call and that experience. And I believe I, the emotions behind it more so than I received on any other promotion and opportunity I've been given. So I, I definitely remember that day. And it, for me, it was life-changing in the sense that I knew that I would be given an opportunity to do something great, especially with the assignment that I was given. So I was really excited about it. And to date, I'll tell anybody one, one of the most rewarding experiences I've had. And so you're an assistant principal, you're rocking it, you're getting things done, and then in comes the news that you are nominated for assistant principal of the year. Just being nominated within itself is remarkable. Tell us how you felt when you got that news. Well, I thought you were going to say I was rocking it as an assistant principal. Then I got a call to go to another school to almost start over. And I think when I said that start over in the sense that I had a, a tough assignment that I was given as an assistant principal after my second year. And when I took answer your question, went to, to get the, I guess it was an email, I guess I got at that time that I was nominated. And initially, I started the whole application process very humbled, and I was okay with whatever outcome it was at that time. And I think as I began to understand and really reason with the value of it, it became to be something different for me. It became more than an award. It became an opportunity for the community to be celebrated for not only the 
the challenges, but the triumphs and overcoming challenges uh, concerning student achievement. So that was definitely, I remember all of those steps as well. And again, the emotions of being very happy and excited, very humbled and honored to be able to represent the entire community. It was at this same time that, well, I'm a, before the before you received that email, you enlisted or you started the Toastmasters program, correct? Correct. How did you hear about Toastmasters? And tell us about that first visit and what ultimately had you decide this program is right for me? Yes, a family friend of mine was a part of a Toastmasters club some years ago. And it was through her that I found out what the term Toastmasters was about. It was very new to me at that time, but I remember her explaining the process in the meeting and how it went. And there was someone there to evaluate your speech and provide you with input or feedback on how well you spoke and using certain crutch words and those kind of things. And it stood out to me and it was just something I kept in the back of my mind. And I remember, again, having a goal to become a better speaker. And I knew that for the position that I was in and positions that I aspired to have after that, that public speaking was going to be something that I was not going to be able to shy away from. I figured that if I was given an opportunity to learn how to be a better speaker and to really learn the art of speaking, that it would help me in whichever role that I was in. And it's done just that. And after the first visit, I remember not so much the, the meeting, but more so coming back home to making a decision. And I didn't spend time visiting 15 clubs before I decided I really attached to the name, which is Team Entrepreneur. And I am an entrepreneur and have interest in owning my own business and businesses. And if I could learn leadership responsibilities and become a better speaker, it was a win-win situation. So I remember making a decision very quickly as this is something that I know I need to do to personally develop myself. And I was all in. And so here we are the night of the ceremony where the assistant principal of the year and principal of the year are announced. Take us through that night and the moment they said who the winner was. So again, a night filled with a lot of emotions. And that night there were in excess of 100 people there to support me. And again, it's one of those things that's a, an extreme honor to have that many people that would not only sacrifice their time, but their treasures to make sure that they were there to support. And it was a big party, it felt like. And I knew that I had this feeling that this night was gonna be again, different for the community. And it wasn't about me winning the war, it was about the community being celebrated for what I felt were a lot of challenges that we had overcome. And when it got down to the, the last two people, you know, there's a drum roll and people are really in suspense, like who is it going to be? And they announced the runner up. So it's like, okay, well, it's down to two. At least I know I'm in the top two. 
And I remember the superintendent actually calling over the school board member. And that was the, the clue to me, because if you contact the school board member, the other candidate was not in my district. So I knew at that point, and I tried to, to brace myself before my name was called as if I was ready for this moment. And I remember standing up and adrenaline pumping and that silence and it just turned into roars and cheers and people shouting. And it became very emotional trying to get to the stage. I didn't think it was gonna have that feeling. It's almost as if like physiologically, everything in my body just shut down and I was just like walking, trying to walk. Uh, but the electricity in the room that night, the cheers, the applause, the people there to support. And again, it was a, a party and a celebration for an entire community of people. It was one of those things that you just don't ever forget. I am proud to say that I was one of those hundred people in that room. They're right. supporting you. I am very proud of you. I've said that again and again, and you continue to amaze me. You continue to inspire me. Something else happened that night. The principal of the year was announced, and it just so happened that Mr. Moret was my personal fitness teacher back in 2004 in South Miami High School. I had him for the entire year, and he was an honorable man. When I started teaching five or six years later, I was at the new teacher orientation, and there he was, the assistant principal of Miami Jackson Senior High School, and I would follow his route, and then I noticed that he was one of the principals of the year he was one of the runner-ups or he was in the running and then he won and I was like wow what a special night for me I am very blessed to see my dear friend and my past teacher win both of those awards and yeah it's just it's amazing it's amazing the connections that you make throughout your your career All right like you yeah. know that that someone very high up like I had that person as a principal and, and I saw him going up the ladder. He was your boss at one point and probably still is. I don't know. And I see how high he has gone. I know about seven or eight people now, either in the region or the district. And it's just amazes me. Yeah. And, and the power of connection and relationships, right? It can take you a life journey to really enjoy that and when you have those people that you come across that not only just have the position and the title but have made an impact as if you as you're talking about in your life it's just a really rewarding experience when you win an award like this the next step up the ladder i'm not going to say it's 100 percent guaranteed but you know it's coming i mean was it any surprise to you that either the next year or the year following, you got the call to be the principal of the school that you were working at. Yeah, it was not really a surprise to get promoted because that was part of the journey when I started as an assistant principal. And actually prior to uh, changing schools after my second year to Carroll City Middle, I thought that I would become a principal uh, actually, it was after my third year, but I thought that would be the time. And sure enough, that there was something of a greater design. Uh, so it wasn't a, a surprise, but 
it was at the right time for sure. And so, I mean, for principal, I mean, that's pretty high up. I mean, if you were to continue going up the leadership ladder, that means that you're no longer responsible for a school. You're now responsible for schools. Now, that's a pretty big step to take. It, did you have any did you have any aspirations while you're pr- being principal? I may want to step up again. I have in the back of my mind this statement that or quote that Miles Monroe said, and it in short, and I'm paraphrasing, it says that when you start a position or have a responsibility, you should immediately begin to identify people that you can develop that will take your place. And I believe in order for me to hold true to that, which I believe is a true statement of responsibility, it only makes sense that somebody else is going to have to take my space, right? Some people use the phrase, you should work yourself out of a job. And that is, so it wasn't really that I had my eyes on a specific position because it took me for, it took me a while to be able to I think internalize and visualize what the next step would look like because the, being a principal is such a great responsibility that you have the ability to impact not just students but parents and entire community. And it's definitely if you if you speak to those that have been principals, even when they have other roles and responsibilities, most of them say, "My best job was being a principal." So working within a school with a group of people that are going in, in the same direction with a common goal and vision, uh, there's not many, there aren't many opportunities or experiences like it. Uh, but I will say, I remember some time ago as a principal, really in, in keeping what I just said about thinking what the next thing. So I started to think about what would be an opportunity to have a greater influence, uh, to influence, as you said, not just one school, but to be able to provide that type of leadership for multiple multiple schools. So in giving that thought, the administrative director role began began to make more sense. And you know, ultimately, even now as I'm thinking about it in this role, right, what would be the next step? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the very next step is, but I know ultimately to do this work at the highest level is the superintendent level of schools, right? Whether it's uh, a district that has 300 schools and some or some superintendents have 30 schools, right? Which is similar to the responsibility I have now. Um, so it's, for me, it's about developing other people that can do what I do better than I do it right now. And is this something that you applied for or you let your superiors know, hey, I may want to take it up a notch? Yes, through the application process, I think you're, you're doing both. You're applying for it, but you're also communicating to those that are familiar with the impact of your work and allowing them to be a part of that journey as well. And so for me, it was both. It was something that I was very, very, very hesitant with applying for another position because I thoroughly enjoyed my my work as a principal. Uh, I had a conversation with my wife, Kim, and she was kind of like that deciding factor that that voice of reason 
And it really brought me back to what I just said, something that's a core belief of mine that my job and responsibility is to develop others so that they could be able to do what I do better than what I do it right now. So if I really believe that, and if I'm always inspiring others, encouraging them to release their potential, then it only it's only fair that I take my own advice. And that was kind of the where the balance kind of tipped there for me. Um, so I decided to apply. And again, it's one of those things that uh, I was comfortable. For me, it was a win-win situation, right? If I, I knew if I tried and it didn't work out, I was still in the place where I was going to be able to do great work. Derek, what qualities should someone look out for to tell them they may be a great leader? Great question. I think, first of all, I believe that everybody, every person is a leader. I think that most of our leadership potential lies dormant. And for a lot of us, we don't put a demand on that leadership potential. With that, I'll say I've noticed that one of the greatest things you can do as a leader and to pay attention to is self-leadership. Because what what you do and the habits that you have, the convictions that you have, the beliefs, uh, your values, those things are what drives leadership. And if you focus on developing yourself as a as a leader, self-leadership, then that will give you the opportunity to influence somebody in some kind of way. And you may not have the president title or you might not be titled the assistant manager, or you might not be given the title or even the responsibilities of a CEO, but that does not mean that that you're not a leader. Um, But I believe there's also some traits that you should develop in that process in self-leadership and simply things like commitment, things like character development. What are some things that you want to develop within your own character that you don't want to pass to other people or in an organization that will cripple that organization. Um, Consistency, so having demands and discipline in your daily life, waking up at a certain time, the discipline of being a learner, educating yourself. There are things that you should do for, again, self-leadership that will allow you, I think, to be more, more of a genuine leader when it's time to lead other, lead other people. Self-leadership. I mean, Self-leadership. those two words just started getting my brain going because I think you're absolutely right. Everybody has to be a manager, a manager of what? Yourself. And that's the most difficult person to lead is yourself. The most difficult person to manage is yourself. It's easy to just subconsciously put things in the back of your mind that you don't want to deal with or make excuses for yourself or to not try as hard as you know you can, to not commit to finishing that degree, to not commit to be faithful to your spouse. Those are, those are things that don't show up on a job title, but they 100% impact who you are and how you lead other people. And when you, I think I've noticed for myself, the the better that I am in leading my own self, then my influence begins to spread even more. Why is that? Because people are attracted and they are influenced by self 
disciplines. Think about it. Gatorade, Nike, they put all of these great athletes on their product. And then those, those commercials, why? Because those athletes are looked at as disciplined. All right, when you see a LeBron James, the reason that he'll be the represent, representative for a company is because that he has certain disciplines. He does things a certain way. He puts a demand on his body to get up every single day, to practice, to eat a certain way, to invest in his body. And we look at that and we're inspired by that. We're influenced by that to the point, you remember the commercial with Jordan, used to think that if Jordan would do something that uh, he would jump high with these certain shoes on, if we put those shoes on, we would be able to jump high, right? Because there's a certain discipline that we're attracted to that Michael Jordan did. And the same thing is true when you go into in your job, when they see you consistently treat people fairly, when they see that you're consistent or fair with all people, when they see that you come and bring your lunch every day, those are things that inspire them. Like, man, that guy is really disciplined with doing this. And when they see that, it inspires and it influences them. And that's where influence starts and that's where leadership starts. If you can do that for yourself, you're by default going to be able to inspire other people. And let's go through some of the things that people have to quote unquote manage for themselves. And I, and I wrote it down as you were speaking, their personal life. You have to manage your personal life, your spiritual life. That is something that you need to manage. What is your connection with God? How often do you pray? How serious do you take that connection? Your health, you have to manage your health. You have to manage your family, right? You have a family life, whether it's, whether if, even if you're single, you have a mother, a dad, you have, you probably have brothers, sisters, cousins, your career, you're managing your career, you're managing your finances. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if you want to see if you're a leader, how are you leading your life? Are you managing your life well enough to say, hey, you know what? I'm doing so well managing my life that I can influence and help people manage theirs, whether it's in their career or other space. So I thank you, Derek, for bringing that insight into the podcast and for my listeners. And so let's say someone is convinced. I'm a perfect self-manager, even though I'm not perfect, I manage my life to the fullest extent that I can. What would be the next steps for someone that wants to enter into, into leadership? And I think when you, once you've identified, as you just said, those areas and you put in the work, or have a plan to put in the work to, for self-leadership, I think you look at what gifts you have. What is it that you're good in, good at? Uh, some people have spent the time to understand what their purpose is in life, why they're here on earth, and some haven't. And sometimes that's okay if you haven't gotten to that point. But if you started by assessing what is it that you do really well, and I'm a strong believer that if you identify those areas and are willing to give that the attention and the focus that it needs, you will reveal your leadership potential. So the person that is great as a singer may not necessarily have a career, for example, in singing. However, that gift can be used 
to be able to benefit others. And as, as I'm saying this, it reminds me of the importance of this gift that you have is always for someone else. And sometimes we think it's only for us to be able to make money and to live a certain lifestyle, but gifts as they're called are for somebody else, right? We don't have a gift. We don't have a gift just to give to ourselves, right? We have our gatherings for birthdays or Christmas, whatever holiday you may celebrate. We come with gifts to be able to give. So when we were giving gifts, they were given to us so that we'd be able to give, to be able to add value to others. Um, so I think when you've identified that, you really look at how you can use that gift or those giftings to be able to help in others and add values to the lives of others. And so what about these other things that you've done in your life? You've joined Toastmasters. You are part of the John Maxwell team. You've, by, by what you've told me, you've read books on leadership. Would you recommend doing these things for people that want to step up in their leadership? I recommend that you spend time, first of all, writing out everything that you do well. Every dream that you have, put it on paper. Every aspiration, put it on paper. Just journal it no matter how big or small you think it may be. And I think once you have that written down, it kind of gives you a lot of times some kind of theme or idea as to the direction you'll spend some of your energy. So I don't necessarily recommend that you do the things that I've done. However, I do recommend that you invest the time in growth. And similar to self-leadership and self-discipline is also personal growth. And I became really turned on on this whole idea from John Maxwell. He has a book on the 15 irrefutable laws of growth. And one of those laws is the law of intentionality. And that law of intentionality simply states that your life can go in many directions, but our job is to make sure that our life is going in the direction that we are planning for it to grow, grow, going. And I should say growing. And that law of intentionality is having a specific plan to grow yourself daily. And he gives the suggestion or the advice that your personal growth should be five days a week, at least for 50 weeks a year. And I think if we do that kind of how we go to work five days a week, if we put together a plan that we're going to develop ourselves five days a week, you are no, no doubt in my mind that you are going to find areas to grow in. And by you growing in those areas, you will see doors of opportunity unlock and open that sometimes you didn't even ask for, but because you are intentionally growing, people are going to seek after the gift that you have. Can you repeat the John Maxwell book? The 15 Balls of Irrefutable Growth. Are there any other books on leadership that you would recommend to someone that is interested in going up the ladder or increasing their knowledge of leadership? 
Yeah, there, there are several. If I could give you a couple, again, going back to John Maxwell, he has a book on developing the leaders around you. Uh, there's a book that's very familiar and famous from Brene Brown, Dare to Lead, which talks about the importance of vulnerability and courage as a leader. I also, there's a book, there are several books by Dr. Miles Monroe, the late Dr. Miles Monroe, that I usually reference him in my leadership practices or presentations. He has so many books. I think you should just Google that name or YouTube, so many things on leadership. Um, but he talks about, he has a book on the spirit of leadership. And that is a, for me, it was a life-changing book. And I kind of mentioned a little bit about in the statement that every person was born a leader, but you have to learn to become a leader. So that book talks about understanding your potential as a leader. He also has a book on the potential of a leader as well. So those are a couple I could give you so many more, the principles of leadership and uh, Stephen Covey that has some books on, of course, on effective habits of leaders. Um, but yeah, in short, though, I think it's, you know, having a plan to seek out those leadership uh, areas and topics, if that's what you're interested in, and becoming a, a better leader. And more so than reading the book, it's putting together a plan from what you're reading. And for me, that was such a huge shift. Um, a lot of us read and we read fast and we are more I think we're more satisfied with how many books we read as opposed to how many books we've implemented and put into practice. So I think more than anything, if you read one book for the whole year, if you're able to practice the strategies and the principles in those books, you're going to go a lot farther than the, than the person who has a lot of knowledge. So you were talking as if it was your favorite one. It's Spirited Leadership. That's probably the first book that people should pick up. Yeah, The Spirit of Leadership. The or the leadership, the, the leadership spirit. So the book talks about both. Um, but I think that is a, I don't know if it's the, the best book to start. I think it depends on where you are, your leadership journey. Some people are just starting with what is the definition of leadership, right? So, uh, but definitely John Maxwell, as you, all of us probably know, has you know, put in, I believe, almost what, 40 years or so into the uh, study of leadership. So he definitely is a help to any person that's starting out in leadership. Thank you, Derek. There is a personality trait that I've noticed and other people have noticed as well. You are a calm individual. And even through the storms, you have this quality of calmness. Is this something you think that you were born with, or is this something that you developed as a strength? Great question. You have them lined up today. Calm for me is similar to leadership. I believe everybody was born with the ability to be calm but you must develop it. And similar to leadership, every person was born as a leader, but you could die a follower if you so choose to. 
And being calm, I will say that part of my mannerism is being calm, but you mentioned something earlier within our development as a person is also our spiritual development, all right? And being able to be calm comes from a place, a lot of times for me, as a place of security and confidence. And I have a strong belief and conviction that, well, first of all, most things that get us in a place of fear and excited and anxious usually turn out to not be what we thought it was. We have fears of things of tomorrow that something may go wrong or fears about uh, our relationship or security or our kids. And if they leave the house, will they return back safely? A lot of things that come through our mind are really fears about things that aren't real. And a lot of times don't become real and never materialize. So I've kind of taken a step back and thinking that whatever the situation is, I believe that there's already a solution and an answer provided. And this situation didn't come to take me out. And that's the confidence in all honesty that comes from my relationship with God. And I tell people that openly and freely all the time that my confidence in him is much greater than my confidence in myself. And I remind myself that out of his love and his admiration for me and who I am, that he's already provided the necessary help, no matter what the situation is. And I try, and as a leader, and going back to that trait, as a leader, you must practice being calm. Because if you are in panic when situations happen, then everybody else is gonna be in panic. And I remember in several situations at work as, an, as a principal and assistant principal, emergency situations would happen and people would look directly at me. And we're talking about emergency situations, things that were threats to people's safety and their health. Um, and the worst thing that you could do is scream and yell and say, ah, everybody, you know, you just can't be frantic like that because you're going to influence the entire environment. And as again, as a leader, one of your top responsibilities is to be able to not respond the way that everybody else is responding. You have to be able to take that moment to think and to gather yourself so that everybody else around you would be gathered as well. So not necessarily work-related, even though people's safety is a pretty big deal, but you're a father. Mm -hmm. Let's say one of your kids finds a bottle of water. They don't know any better. They open the lid and they spill the entire bottle on the floor. Derek, how do you stay calm when all you see is a big mess and your child jumping on the puddle on the floor? How does, one, how does a parent stay calm in that situation? Well, in that situation, that's, I think, thinking about that situation before it happens. And maybe the preparation and anticipation of what could go wrong is some is one of the ways that you could stay calm. And wait, wait, can I, can I can I stop you right there? Of course. What do you mean? What do you mean when you say what did you say? You know that it anticipated. 
how do you anticipate every single little thing that your child can do in your house that can get you upset? No, and it's that it's not that I would anticipate everything that the person is going to do, but it's anticipating the types of things that will happen. So a child in all of our experience will do things that children do. So yes, the very first time that situation may happen, you may overreact and kind of think about it hopefully and learn, but I've been in that same situation many, many times to where I have conditioned myself to know how to respond to that. And I think the same is true with a lot of things that we do. We're not really surprised that somebody is going to cut us off in traffic tomorrow. That's not a new occurrence. We're not surprised that when we get to work that the same person that we've had problems with for the last year is going to act or respond any differently. Uh, we're not we're not surprised that the conversation or the potential argument we're going to have with our spouse is going to be on a new topic. <laughs> so I, and that's what I mean by anticipating it, because there aren't many new things that are going to happen. It is new in the sense that it didn't happen that day. <laughs> but the kids are going to be kids. The spouse is going to be the spouse. The person that you're dealing with is usually the person that you're going to deal with. Uh, an emergency situation, I go back to work, is something that there's a protocol and a procedure for because it's going to happen. Uh, police officers are trained because the emergency is going to happen. Fire department, same thing. But I think it's being able to, as I said, think and not to respond emotionally to a situation. And that takes practice for a lot of people. How are you not going to be more irrational than rational in this situation. Are you responding from how you feel? Are you responding from what makes sense and how, and how you can actually think through a process? So that being calm is thinking through the process and really pausing. If you can get yourself to pause for two seconds, you'll likely respond differently than if you just, re just reacted. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit more because I don't know if I can contextualize what you just said. And I definitely want to get clarity on this whole anticipating thing. So let's say you're part of a sports team and the sports team is not good. It's not good. I'm just going to say it outright. You guys suck. We suck. We suck. Okay. And so if I'm in that situation, like what you said, I'm going to condition myself into believing or not believing expecting or anticipating that we're going to lose the next game. And so for me, if I'm expecting to lose the next game, one of two things are going to happen. Either we lose and it met my expectations or we win and we exceed my expectations. But let's not cross hairs here. My expectations are very low, very, very low for my team. And so are you saying that as someone or anyone, either a parent or at your job or a spouse should have quote unquote, low expectations, like I should expect my child to make a mess. And so when it happens, okay, he met my expectations. And when he doesn't make a mess, he exceeded my expectations. Is that what you're saying? No, not at all. Uh, the expectation and anticipation are 
two different things. One is having thought through the worst case scenario that could happen and how you would respond. And the other is what you communicate to the person. All right. And I'll say this as a, in the, in the light of being a teacher, I believe one of the greatest responsibilities of the teacher is to have high expectation of all students. That in itself is a tremendous responsibility because as you just said, our experience could have taught us that this type of student won't be successful. So why put in the effort and energy to help them if our experiences have taught us that that person won't be successful? I'm not saying that your expectation should be lowered, but what I'm saying is if that student doesn't make the mark, your ability to remain calm is important because if you overreact to that student, you could very well cause them to feel like they're a failure and ultimately hinder their success. So hopefully understanding that your expectation, if I, if I instruct you on something and I give you clear directions to do it, my expectation is that you're going to do it and meet my expectation of getting it done. However, if you don't, you won't be the first person to disappoint me and not meet my expectation. So it is my responsibility to respond to that accordingly with being able to be some most of the times calm. And sometimes calm is not that you're not upset or angry. It's just that you are in control of your emotions so that you don't overreact and you react in a negative way that is going to cause, especially in this person, in this case, the student, right? To feel as if they're a failure. So being calm is more so a self-regulating way to deal with something as opposed to giving off of this energy that, uh, that, you know, it's just so overwhelming that you can't deal with it and nobody else can as well. So back to the story about the child, right? So that child wastes the water. Yes, you're upset. You've probably given them directions to not have their drink at the edge of the table and they did it anyway. And they could have poured the water, the bottle of water on the floor intentionally, right? Your response to that needs to be appropriate, is what I'm saying, right? Does it re does it require a discipline, a disciplinary action? Does it require, require reinforcement to instruct again? But I'm in control of those decisions and I can make them with an understanding that I'm doing what's necessary to respond to the situation as opposed to just emotionally reacting. Okay, but both expectation and anticipation deal with what could happen in the future. Are we both on the same page on that? Correct. And so I'm, I'm still trying to get down the difference between, and again, I know that you said student, but I, I think that a child misbehaving and a, and a student not getting good grades, maybe two separate things. I, I don't know. I don't know if I even want to equate this the two because for a student, yes, the teacher is directly involved. The teacher is, you know, I'm answering my own question, but the, the teacher is directly involved. The teacher is asking the student questions. They're making sure that, that they're learning what they need to learn. And I don't know if you can apply those same principles to a child who still learning about their own world and the difference between right and wrong. So when I say, and then again, there, there's, there is a difference. I just want to make sure that I'm getting this right. Don't have expectations 
that your child is going to misbehave. But if you anticipate your child misbehaving, at least the blow wouldn't be so unnerving. Is this is that what I'm getting from you? Again, I'll, and to use that same example, don't expect for the child, well, first of all, to do what they haven't been taught. That's a very true and, and fair statement. The anticipation part is not necessarily directly tied to the person. It's anticipating your response when something goes wrong. All right. That's a, again, that's a self-regulating thing that you have to do, right? How am I going to respond when anything doesn't go the way that I don't want it to go? We use the, the example with the child because that's, you know, the point that you brought up. But within that situation, I might not have had any expectation of the child. It might not have been my child. It could have been a kid that was over and, you know, sitting next to me in a restaurant, right? But how I respond to that, I have anticipated that if I'm dealing with a child or dealing with an adult, something could go wrong. And I have prepared in a worst case scenario what I'm going to do to respond to that situation. So just to clarify one more time, because I really want to get this down and I think it's very important. My expectations of my child is different than the anticipation of how I'm going to react or the expectation of how I should react in those situations. Correct. Okay. I think I get it. And, and so the same thing goes with teachers, right? I'm a teacher myself. Yes. Mm -hmm. I have high expectations for my student, but I also have to have expectations for myself for when the student achieves their goal or doesn't achieve my expectations for them. Right. And have you thought about what you're going to do if they don't meet your expectation? Okay. So how, how important or how much value or how much effort should one make into that particular contingency? Well, I think it depends on your role. For me, that's one of the things that separates great leaders from good leaders. And I think great leaders are able to anticipate setbacks and have a plan for it in case it happens. And I think others wait until it happens and they may be good at providing direction and support, but a lot of the great advancements in, in life, I think really are on the side of how do I anticipate this setback? I have this plan, right? We have this lesson plan, right? I'm teaching and I've done it many times and I have an, I have an expectation that kids are going to be proficient or I should say they're going to meet mastery of this lesson by being able to produce this product by the end of this lesson. However, along this lesson, I have some checkpoints of things that I'm looking for. And if I don't see it, this is what I need to do to respond differently to address the need of or needs of that child. And I think the same thing is true in other areas. So that's a, a a great example that you just brought up and being a teacher, that's lesson planning, right? And I think great teachers as leaders are able to adjust their lesson to be able to meet the needs, even though what they stayed up at midnight the night before planning didn't work out the way they were able to anticipate if students one, two, three can't answer this, this is what I can do to address that situation. 
And I think that that way of thinking, that way of planning uh, helps you out a lot so that you're not derailed when things happen in life because you've anticipated what the setback might be. Derek, like we said, like, and what you said, self-leadership, right? And you went through a, a tough journey, and it's a journey that I have been wrestling with my entire life. Can you take us through your weight loss journey? Well, thank you for being so gracious of saying something that I went through. I don't, I don't know if you stopped going through it. And uh, I'll say in short that the process of transformation or improvement, and specifically when we're talking about weight and health, is not really something that you get to check off of your list. And as I've grown older, I've learned that there's always something that you could be doing better. And it could be simple things as you weren't drinking enough water, right? You can make small adjustments along the way. Uh, that self-leadership to go back to that, I remember having a conversation uh, with Kim, my wife, we were dating or possibly just friends, probably dating early in our dating at that time. And I remember talking to her about the importance of being healthy so that when I had kids, I was able to enjoy their life. And the last thing I wanted to do is to be a hindrance to my family from a health standpoint, because I didn't do what I should have done uh, to take care of myself. So I started with a very simple adjustment and it's discipline, you know, over time. And back then it was just drinking more water, not drinking sodas, but drinking water, not consuming my calories through beverages that I drink. So that meant I had to learn to, to drink water and, and like it. That was a, a, a discipline that created momentum along with simple things as walking and sticking with that. And then, you know, you get to plateaus and things that don't work out as effectively when you first start out that you have to make an adjustment. But it is the discipline to having a plan and not giving up on it, even when, even when it doesn't work out. Like I'm in the middle of, I think another, what I've experienced to be a plateau and it's the constant uh, just refocus that this is something that I'm committing to and it's not gonna go away tomorrow. I'm not gonna be able to check it off the list tomorrow or next week or next year and giving myself the, the grace and the patience to be able to get it done. But you could create a goal or a short-term goal right? Okay. I want to lose 10 pounds. Right. Yep. And then you can check it off your list, but your overall health is not something that you're going to be able to check off your list. Correct. And that's what I mean by that. I, I really don't recall when I started to, I didn't have a, a weight goal. That wasn't the why that wasn't my purpose in doing. It was to be able to live a better quality of life when I was older from where I was at that point. And understanding just what you just said right there's a difference between weight loss and health because you can be at a ideal weight and you can have so many health issues you can be at a weight that maybe the nutritionist uh, or dietitians don't think is the most healthy way you can be an extremely healthy person so it wasn't necessarily the goal for pounds it was more so a healthy lifestyle and that comes with just certain habits you have to 
to pick up whether you like them or not, right? There's not really a, a lasting shortcut to it, if you will, right? It's disciplines that you have to pick up. And that goes back to just making sure that you go to your doctor's appointments, right? Because, well, for me personally, every time I go to my yearly checkup, the doctor says, everything is fine if you can just lose some weight. And so that's why I am just for pure weight loss. I have never been told that I am unhealthy. My cholesterol levels are good. They, they, you know, they do their heart scans. Everything seems to be fine. But they always say, if you can just bring that weight down, you should be okay. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, you could be skinny, but unhealthy because all you eat is junk food and your body can handle that. So, so thank you. Thank you for, for that insight. What is next for Derek? What's next for me is, well, now to learn the new role that I'm in, that's definitely on the top of my list. <laughs> Uh, being, you know, given a, the responsibility and the privilege to lead several schools is definitely a task to really sink my teeth into. Um, again, a tremendous responsibility that's on the top of my list. And I think to continue to grow as a leader, not I think I know. And I mentioned that personal development is something that's extremely important to me. And it's something that uh, I believe impacts all the areas of my life. And then I'll reassess after I feel that I have some type of balance, if you will, in this new role. And definitely, as I mentioned before, to be able to provide uh, that level of support for many schools is important. And I'll you know, look at how to work myself out of this position by helping others to develop that can, can take it. And again, I believe that's the highest level of leadership to be able to develop other leaders. Some people develop others in their roles that they're in, but to develop others to be an impactful leader is the goal of all of this. Derek, I wanna thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. Your insight is, is really remarkable. How can people find you? Uh, do you have social media? that people that are inspired by your words can can follow you? Sure. They can follow me on uh, Instagram. I play around with that mostly at uh, Derek Leeds, D-E-R-E-K, Leeds. Uh, they can also find me on my website, uh, which is iteachandleadllc.com. And they can also find me on Facebook, Derek Negron, D-E-R-E-K-N-E-G, R-O-N. So those are usually the places that they can find me. Excellent. Derek, any last words for the audience? To close, I would just encourage each person to commit to things that we spoke about on this podcast, which is self-leadership, having a plan to develop yourself and using your gifts and not be so focused on the promotion or the title. Those things come when you are committed to developing yourself and to developing other people. So I encourage you to take the journey of leadership and remain faithful and diligent in those two things. And I am confident that the world of opportunities will open up to you. 
This episode is called Success in Leadership with Derek Negron. And that will do it for this episode of the Life Teacher Podcast. Until next time, bye.